The biggest challenge that a SaaS startup has is that it has no awareness, it has no confidence, and it has no trust. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And those three things are essentially brand in a nutshell. And so if the founder or founders don't have really strong personal brands themselves, the whole thing is bust. It's just not going to happen. Hey everyone, welcome back to Innovative Minds and I have got a innovative mind here today, Mark Stuce, who is the chairman and CEO of Proof Analytics. Now I don't know a lot about Proof Analytics, but Mark had, has caught my attention on the LinkedIn feed and that's what's so super cool when you see founders and CEOs grabbing attention by saying cool things or, you know, enticing marketers or anyone out there by just, you know, finding out a bit more. And this is the opportunity where Mark's been posting some really cool uh, polls, I would say, is one of his, you know, core formats I see him doing often. And we'll get into that as to how he comes up with those awesome questions. But hey, Mark, you welcome. And you've really grabbed my attention with, you know, your content. And I want to learn more about you and your company and so forth. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to, to uh, let's talk. Let's okay. go. Okay. Tell me, tell me about the journey. Like when I look at your LinkedIn and when you grab my attention, right, what I saw was how you evolved into a CEO. You know, you've come from different parts, your CMO, your content sort of CMO kind of style, I would say, of content uh, that you're sharing a lot of the times. And now you're a CEO. What, what's that journey been like? And yeah, tell me more. <laughs> wow. I, I would have to say that the journey has been extraordinary. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean all positive, right? Um, I think that, that anytime you become an entrepreneur and particularly with SaaS, you're going to learn a lot about yourself and some of it you're going to enjoy and some of it you are really not going to enjoy. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think that it, it is kind of binary. It's a binary experience uh, in, in, in that respect it either makes you a much better person going through this or it doesn't, you know, I, I, a lot of times will say that being a SaaS entrepreneur is a lot like what they say about money and power, Mm. right? It, it, it doesn't corrupt you as much as it reveals what's already in you, you know? And, uh, and that's, that's certainly been, my experience, you know, up, down and all around, you know, I mean, none of us are perfect, but it, it's been, it's been something I wouldn't trade for anything. It's interesting. Do you think that the journey is different for a SaaS entrepreneur versus a normal entrepreneur? Yeah. I mean, we can simplify it, um, by just contrasting SaaS with, um, a services, professional services business, right? It could be an agency, it could be, Mm -hmm. you know, Whatever. Um, the complexity in SaaS is just monstrous, right? Um, anyone who tells you that SaaS is simple uh, 
hasn't done it. Um, and I think that it's like a lot of things in life, right? The more you know about it, the more questions you have. Um, that's sort of the definition of an expert is <laughs> what do they realize they don't know, right? Um, so I think that whereas if you are, if you're selling time, if you're your time, other people's time that worked for you, whatever, right? It's a very straightforward uh, kind of setup for the most part. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, particularly in marketing, right? Someone can go from being a CMO to being a head of a startup agency and they can hit 5 million in revenue fairly quickly. You know, if they have any kind of reputation at all for good stuff, they're going to, they're going to hit that pretty fast. Um, hitting 5 million ARR uh, in SaaS is a multi-year journey. Uh, and there's just no, no question about that. I mean, they're always going to be that one tenth of 1% that defy that statement. Um, but it's not normal. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, you compare, I mean, the journey you talk about for most entrepreneurs is one that I've seen of similar. So my first business was a SaaS platform. It was a platform which empowered beauty professionals to basically have tools so they can be online. Right. And right. I remember not coming and I failed it. Right. I failed miserably because of my lack of experience a, in funding a, you know, a successful round. Uh, I had to learn software. I don't know if you came from a software background yourself. I did. You know. I, did. Yeah. <laughs> so, I did. I was, I was pretty, pretty far along in that respect. Yeah. So imagine that for me, I didn't have software. So I'm learning software. I'm learning how to manage agile development. And then on top of that, after I get to the end of that, and I've released this pretty cool product in the market, here I am going, how do I market it? And I'm going to digital agencies and marketing agencies, and they're screwing me left, right and center and just eating up all the cash. And I'm not funded, you know, on top of that, to have the runway to experiment. So SaaS, yeah. I think can be very challenging, but I think the product market fit of that product is so unknown as well. So the journey is even more difficult than a service based journey where you go, okay, someone's going to need consulting or someone's going to, there's already yeah, multiple I mean, there's, businesses like that. Yeah. I mean, there's in SaaS and, and it's not limited to SaaS, but um, so many unknown unknowns. Right. So like, for example, you have no idea whether from a market timing perspective, you are right on. And most of the time it feels like you are, but it's sort of delusional. Right. Um, or where are you like looking back on it? So we've been doing proof about six years. I think that we were about three to four years early. Yeah. You know, where things really changed for us in a palpable way was about six months into COVID. Yeah. When all of a sudden everybody realized that past was in no way prologue. Um, and that if they didn't have some way of forecasting, looking down the road and around corners and modeling this and modeling that, that they were going to be in trouble. Uh, and obviously some people realize that faster than other people. Um, but it, it is, it, it is definitely, you know, one of the things you really see in the analytics 
which is actually very humbling. It's extremely humbling. Um, is how little you control. Like uh, you build a you build an analytical model in Proof or in any other tool, right? And on balance, sixty five percent of that model is going to be factors that you do not control. This is the wave that we are all attempting to surf, right? Um, and so what you find is that that's far from being a statement about, well, you know, hell, it's, you know, it doesn't really matter what I do. Hmm. Actually, it matters a ton what you do, right? Uh, you have to, if anything, the fact that you don't control 65, 70% of the equation means that you had better damn well control the rest of it really, really well. Um, and that you have to be able to sense, have a feedback loop is what I really mean with what's going on with the wave and shift your body, shift your board, right? Do all these things correctly. That's what really separates whether or not you wipe out or you end up on the beach with a flourish, right? I mean, that that's, that's kind of it. Um, and so that is, uh, that, that, you know, you start to really realize that none of us are masters of the universe, except sometimes in our own head. <laughs> I love that. Tell me more about proof analytics. So tell me what it enables and who it enables to do exactly what. Sure. So the, the math uh, in proof is, is not new, right? In fact, the math in general that does most analytics, particularly in a business context, is not new. The big issue uh, historically has been operationalizing analytics into the business, into the business decision-making process so that it's relevant, right? So what has been historically the problem you know, just kind of putting it in plain language is you have a data science team and they're working on all these different models and everything. And they show up with these answers and the business leaders go, well, damn, you know, I mean, that looks really cool, but that's time has already moved on past all this. Like you're too late, mm. right? Like even your forecasts, are in the past today when you're showing it to me, mm. right? Like, what am I really supposed to do with this? Um, and that was certainly what I encountered, you know, in, in large corporate roles, global roles. I was a huge champion for using analytics, but we had to spend mountains of money and hire lots more data scientists just to deal with that latency issue, with the throughput issue, with the timely, timeliness and relevance issue, right? Um, and it just was pretty freaking obvious to me anyway, that this was an automation play deluxe, right? And so um, we proceeded to build proof, which is an automated version of multivariable linear and nonlinear regression. Right, it, it enables, there's kind of two parts to proof. One is for the data scientist and one is for the business guy, the marketing person. Um, and on the analyst side, 
we've used AI and automation to dramatically accelerate the modeling process. So instead of many, many days to create a model, right, it's now done in two to three hours. So you can proliferate models, you can really scale it far on a far greater basis than you ever could before. And then on the business user side, the big question has always been, man, you know, I'm looking at all these graphs and everything else, and it's like freaking Greek to me, oh. right? Is anyone going to like explain this to me? And so instead, I mean, the classic approach has, with analytics tools has always been to give the business user kind of a dumbed down version of the analyst screen. Oh. And it doesn't work, right? And so we, we came up with a number of UX approaches that made it possible for the normal business person, the normal marketer, the normal sales leader, whoever, right, to look at this and say, damn, I, I totally get this, mm -hmm. right? And, it, and it's because it works. So every business decision at its core is like a navigation decision. I know where I am. I know where I want to go. I've got this path ahead of me right, that I've mapped out, that's usually the forecast, right? And my question then is, what do I need to change? When do I need to change it? And by how much do I need to change it, given what's going on around me that I don't control? So you think about the GPS on your phone, right? This is traffic, this mm -hmm. is weather. These are all mm -hmm. these things that ultimately make you reroute, right? Yeah. Same thing in business. And so we give it to the business user, whether they're a marketer or whoever they are in those terms, right? And they're like, and then we give them an ability to reroute. We give them ability to war game a response to quote, get back on track, sticking with the GPS analogy, right? Uh, what is that going to take? What is that going to look like? How much time am I going to save? How much time might I still be a little bit late achieving this goal, right? And so now it, it's all about being able to see it, explain it, optimize it so that everybody can say, okay, totally understand what's going on here. I totally know what to expect, right? And we're, you know, we're going to move forward another month and we're going to recompute again so that we can see, well, we... Were we more correct this time or not? Got it. How, then I'm curious to know how deep the tool goes. So for example, I understand your tool can help forecast to get to a X revenue. Like, hey, based on currently the traffic that you're, you're bringing in to your funnel and then the CTR of that and how that moves and then how that converts, I can now help you forecast exactly what you're going to make in the next 12 months based on the current situation and the data that you have. Now, if you can move the traffic up, then this is the projection. This is how it can move the needle for you. Or if your CFO comes to you and says, hey, you know, I've been really impressed with what's going on in marketing and I've got a, an extra three million. Mm -hmm what could you do with it and what yeah. would it mean and how fast would it make an impact? Right. Yes. So that, that's the time lag piece, which is super, mm. super key. Yes. Right. And you model that, right. Mm. You can model that right in proof and say, well, you know, if we spent 3 million in the following ways, 
that would do X, Y, and Z to these projections, to these Got forecasts, it. right? And then it's a business decision at that point. Do I want to spend the money that way or not? Correct. And when you are analyzing that traffic and you're giving that anal analysis to the business, they're clearly able to see all the different variants of traffic and how much that cost to bring that traffic in and the throughput that we talked about of that traffic. Like they're able to go all the way and see each different sources at that level. Yeah, you could do that. But, but I mean, actually most uh, C-suites couldn't care less about that level of granularity, right? Right, um, right. They, I just want they to know expect, how much money. Yeah, they, they, what, expect the, they, they expect the marketing function or whatever the function is, right? Yeah. You know their business well enough to have that under control. Yeah. What they're really interested in is seeing is, okay, what are the trend lines here and what do we need to adjust and how much do we need to adjust it by in order to get where we need to be? And are we spending the right amount of money on marketing or whatever? Right. Um, or are we past the point of diminishing returns? Which basically means that I can keep spending money, but it's not going to mean anything. Right. Or are we way low on the S curve? That's the optimization curve. Right. So, but we're killing it, but we're low. Right. Mm -hmm. So that means if we spend more and more and more money, we're going to mm -hmm. get more and more and more of that same level of return and even maybe a better level of return at some point. In which case, if you can afford it, you'd be crazy not to do that, right? I mean, it's kind of like if I just said, hey, if you give me a dollar and I give you $3 back, yeah, um, wouldn't you do that as long as you had a dollar? Yeah, absolutely. I guess the, yeah. the, the interesting thing you really point out is the time. And the time yeah. it takes just because you gave me that dollar how quickly can i you know spin that dollar into three dollars is the biggest right. question of all right that's the most because everyone... that's right <laughs> no that's, that's exactly right and, and actually time lag i i did a keynote several years ago at south by southwest and it was all about time lag being the cmo's greatest enemy yes because if the problem with time lag is that everybody says, well, marketing takes time. Okay. We get that. Okay. But how much time? I mean, and that's a computable idea, right? So you don't, you don't have, there's no guessing on this, right? Yeah. The problem is most marketers don't know that that's the case. And most business leaders don't know that that's the case. And so they'll spend all this money on like brand, brand investment. Mm. And and nobody will ever set the expectation with the C-suite that, you know, I mean, you're not going to see an impact, a measurable impact from this investment for nine months. So what, what happens is, is that in the absence of expectation setting and follow-up, right, analytical follow-up, the C-suite starts to say, freaking hell, man, we spent 28 million, I'm making this up, we spent 28 million on brand, right? And we can't see any benefit at all. So then what happens? Well, then the murmuring starts to happen about, well, maybe we have the wrong CMO and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then 
you know, two, two and a half years into it, he or she is out the door, right? And then all of a sudden it starts to kick in, but they don't realize why and what's caused it. And so they write it off to other things, other cool things that usually they have a hand in themselves, when in fact it was the original investment in brand. I know, I know. An average CMO last about 18 months in SaaS, particularly in a role. And that's, that's, that's average. Yeah, no, it's, it, it can, re- I mean, you know, the biggest challenge that a SaaS startup has is that it has no awareness, it has no confidence, and it has no trust. Exactly. Right? Powerful. And those three things are essentially brand in a nutshell. And so if the founder or founders don't have really strong personal brands themselves, yes, the whole thing is, is a bust. It's just not going to happen. No one's going to move fast enough to be able to bootstrap that business. And probably no one of any consequence anyway is going to invest in it either. Right. And so the whole thing dies when it's not, it probably was not the fault of the product. Um, it, it was, the absence of these three really super important things, awareness, confidence, and trust, and combined with the risk aversion in most customers today, and the, the fact that many, many SaaS customers believe that the SaaS companies lie to them in order to get their, their buy-in, it's just, it's become a fairly toxic situation. and it's become really so much harder to start uh, something like that. I mean, if you're not really well-funded, if, if your seed round you know, isn't several million minimum, right, you're going to have a really hard time. Absolutely. You said something so powerful there with the awareness, confidence, trust. And you said then that if the founders themselves don't build that early on with their respective investors, with their respective partners, that it will just, the brand itself will fail. And it's really interesting that you have the same viewpoint that the founders lend their brand to their companies initially. Like it's them almost introducing the confidence into these, this particular brand often going, oh, they're the people behind it, especially in these earlier days. Is that why you, you have gone out there and really, you know, arouse the market with your brand awareness and actually being out there so much as a founder yourself? Yeah, I I think that that is probably true. You know, um, I think that one of the things that has changed for me over the particular last five, five years or so is I think I am still very provocative in my posts today. I think most people would say that that's true. Um, in the in the earliest days, though, looking back on it, I mean, I, it's not like I intended it at the time, but looking back on it, I think I was pretty much insulting. Um, I, you know, my, I was so provocative that I was insulting, and it certainly got a lot of attention, and so it definitely filled in the uh, the awareness piece in a mm. big way, right? Mm. 
I um, think also, you know, the fact that I and, and others on my team had such a command of the facts of this mm. built a lot of confidence, but I don't, looking back on it, this is where I would really do it differently if I had, if I could time travel, right? <laughs> is is, uh, is I, I, I don't think I built a lot of trust. Uh, and, you know, we all have a, you know, one of the, one of the challenging things about having an epiphany in your life or your work or whatever, right? Is it, unless you are really on top of yourself, it's not too long after that epiphany that you become, that you forget the epiphany and you just become very proud of your knowledge, your special knowledge, right? And um, I think that, that particularly when we founded Proof, I was probably, and probably still am, way less than, one of way less than five CMOs in B2B who have ever done this at scale. In other words, not only proven the impact that marketing had on the business in a very complex, multifaceted kind of business, but to actually be able to calibrate it and recalibrate it and re-optimize it uh, as we went along, that was, I mean, that's, that's still a very rare thing in B2B. It's not in B2C. Yeah, well, the buying decision in B2B is so much more complex, so much more multifaceted. So much, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and your feedback <laughs> loops are typically faster and, oh. you know, all that kind of stuff. It's they also hard. They also use, you know, uh, the math in proof and have for 30 years, right? I mean, Procter & Gamble, Kraft, all mm -hmm. those companies were the first, uh, this would have been like in the mid-90s, to... Uh, create what became marketing mixed modeling. Um, and it has substantially evolved and modernized uh, over that period of time. But I mean, it is like, I mean, like you look at major Fortune 1000 B2C brands, the number of them that aren't doing marketing mixed modeling is really small. <laughs> um, whereas the number of B2B you know, it's, it's a, it's, you want to talk about Greenfield, that's, that's B2B on this issue, right? So, yeah, yeah, we're way behind, we're way behind where we don't, I don't know, it's just completely different, right? And we're just still figuring it out, this whole world of how well, many touch think, points. Yeah, and I, th and I think the other, yeah, I think, and I think the other big problem here is, is that, look, this is more of a human statement than a marketing statement, but mm. You know, human beings want simple solutions to complex problems. The problem is, is that those, that's rarely the case, right? It doesn't work that way. Um, and so what you've seen in terms of marketing is they have tried so many different ways to solve this problem. Um, Multi-touch attribution is is a recent uh, phenomenon that has now gone down to defeat for mm. the most part, and was was uh, mathematically always flawed. 
it was never going to be the right answer. Now, does that mean that it, a, a great customer journey map with all that data isn't valuable? It's valuable. It's really valuable, right? But you can't look at that and say, well, this is how I'm going to place my bets from a budget standpoint. You just can't. So there's some laws of gravity here and, and you know, people don't like laws of gravity, you know, unless it, unless it's helping them out and otherwise they don't. So you'd said something earlier about your content and I want to touch on that. You said, you know, you didn't build trust and the main, you know, thing that we talked about was awareness and trust and confidence. And you said you didn't instill enough trust in your content. What kind of content strategy do you believe that instills trust in someone? Empathy. You How know, do you build really, that? Just demonstrating that you really care, you know? And I think that it's sort of like being a black belt in some martial art, right? I mean, you know that if you get into a fight, you're going to win. So what does that mean? Does it mean that you're more likely or less likely to feel like you have to get into a fight? Well, I mean, most practitioners of Kung Fu or Taekwondo or whatever will say that they were exponentially less likely to get into a fight. Mm. Um, and so I think the same thing is true here. You know, I, I think... Going back on it, you know, five years ago, I was trying to make a point a lot of times when what was really needed is me having confidence that, that I really understood what really was really going on and taking that and turning it into the freedom to be empathetic with mm. people and to approach them where they were instead of saying you need to come over here not necessarily to me personally but you need to come over here to this perspective and you need oh. to do it like too sweet right and and i think that that was well i don't think i know that that was uh that was not the right approach Right. And that was a, that was about a flaw in me. Got it. It's Far the warmth, than, you're saying it's the warmth of maybe telling that come over here and the warmth of empathizing. And you're saying that the warmth yeah, well, was maybe. Yeah, not, I think what you'll see a lot. So one way that I express this today yeah. is that while I still do posts in my feed, mm. right. Mm. From my page, what I do far more of is. I go to where there's a hot conversation and I begin mm. to share and go back and forth with people. And how do you find the hot conversations? Uh, I'm, I'm now connected to so many people that they, <laughs> they, a lot of times they alert me to them, you know, okay. they'll, they'll tag me into it or they'll yeah. send me a note and say, you need to go over here. Right. Yeah. Got it. Um, got it. You're getting then, the notifications as well. Yeah, on no, your yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and so, and I, and I just, and I try, I just stay very non-argumentative. 
Yeah. You know, well, that's- and I just say, tell me where you're coming from. Tell me what your experience, what are you struggling with? Right. Um, yeah. I made a post over the weekend that, that uh, performed at a level that I, it still astonishes me. And it was all about why analytics initiatives fail. Yes. Right. It's, and, it's such a pain point, you know, yeah, like it, 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 and, it makes you feel something as soon as you say that in my heart, yeah. like I feel the irritation coming on <laughs> of right. all these it's, tools. Like, you know, I think yeah. about, and they say they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And you try and put it in and then you're like, my God, like it's so irritating, you know, that, so when you say that it arouses an emotion and that's why probably people go, I want to read this. Yeah, no, I think, and I think that particularly if you are not a trained data scientist or a trained analyst, you feel helpless, Mm. right? And so I don't, you know, and this, this is where for me, it's kind of become this fusion of who I have become as a person with what. I need to be as a CEO, right? And that is, I'm I I'm now far more interested in your pain than I am in my solution to it. Like right? telling you, yeah. I mean, you I do have a I a lot of times I do have a solution to it, right? But but I um, I don't start with that. I, I you know I I start at the other end. So that's how your content strategy has evolved. But when I talk about content strategy, I'm also including comments because I know some people that don't see comments as actually part of your content strategy. But one thing, the way you actually grabbed my attention was through your commenting of a post. Yeah, well, you know? I, think and, it's, I think it's far more interesting for everyone, right? Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, we, we uh, back, you know, when everybody was still doing a lot of events and there were multiple keynotes mm. and you know, all this kind of stuff, right? I used to say, I used to walk up and I'd say, look, you know, I'm going to talk about X for about 10 minutes, right? Mm. And then we're going to do 20 minutes of Q&A. And if you've only got 10 minutes of Q&A, then we'll just finish early, right? Because, I mean, there's nothing worse than a talking head, yeah. There's just not, yeah. right? I mean, everybody wants a conversation. And so I I would say just enough to prime the pump and everything else was a conversation. And what you see me do on LinkedIn today is is a very much of an extension of that. I also just started kind of feeling that it's a little egocentric to say hey, I've posted this really cool thing on my page. All you guys, no matter what else <clears throat> you may be doing, come over here and read this, right? I feel like I'm really, I'm far more effective if I go where other people already are and I just add some value, you know, uh, or the spotlight. Again, this is sort of like the lesson out of the analytic, right? It's not all about you. Yeah, it's really, 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 truly not right. It it's uh, been probably one of the greatest releases that I've ever experienced in my life was the realization that in my heart, not just in my head, that that was true. Wow, 
the comment I remember that caught my attention was something about around brand as a decision insurance. It was a comment yeah. that you made. Yeah. Do you recall? Yeah. Do you oh, yeah, recall? very much. Tell yeah. us about it. someone that's listening on. What did you brand as a decision insurance? Yeah, I mean, actually, um, I guess it was probably about four years ago, maybe five years ago. I was in a meeting, so this is proof has just started up and everything. I'm in a meeting with the CMO of Four Seasons Hotels. And we were talking about brand, we we're talking about awareness, confidence, and trust. And she said, Yeah, she goes, you know, that's the whole business model here. We sell trip insurance. We sell hotel insurance. If you can afford to pay us what we're asking for a room, you know that two things are true. One is it's going to be damn near perfect and anything that goes wrong, we are going to fix it immediately, period, right? And I thought, you know, that is actually really powerful. And then I was talking with a Gartner analyst that I've known for a long, long time who, who basically said, you know, if you stop and think about the industry analyst business model, we sell decision insurance, right? We, if we validate your technology choice and it goes sideways, you can always say to your boss, man, I did what Gartner told me to, right? And that's sort of like a get out of jail free card. There's that old saying, you know, this is now several decades old, but you know, that no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Same deal, right? So again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, just real fast, I mean, startups have very, very limited ability to offer decision insurance. If you, even if they have a great product mm. and even if the big, huge company has a sucky product, right? They can offer decision insurance and it's their brand. Mm. Their brand stands for. And so, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm a, I'm a big, and, and so what, what I think is so important, uh, like in SAS is to do everything you can, wherever you are in your evolution as a SaaS company to increase the decision insurance and decrease the risk real and perceived. Right. Um, and so for example, price, I mean, price is one of the four P's of marketing and yet if you talk to most B2B marketers for the last 15 or 20 years, you won't hear anything about price, nothing. And yet it all, what happens? It always gets negotiated heavily, 40, 50, 60% discounts, right? Why? Because they're looking for insurance against the evil day, right? Exactly. So that's, I mean, I just think that that is, that's key. Marketers don't think, though, they have the right to influence price. They think that's a business decision. And that's where, in their mind, they don't see that, you know, they should be coming and saying, hey, this is the price. They think the price is set and then they come in right after doing everything they can to sell something. But what you're right. absolutely saying is it's actually their responsibility to let 
their teams as a team, let them know that you products just got to de-risk the product. The reason my marketing's not working yeah. is you, yeah, it's no. just too risky. You're priced out and it's too no, high risk ab, to take the ab, risk. Ab, absolutely. 110%, right? I mean, it is, uh, and I think, unfortunately, it's, an, you know, what it's really an artifact of is that most B2B marketers have very little customer contact, right? It's an arm's length relationship that they have with the customer. Absolutely. And yeah, they will, they will do VOC surveys and they will, you know, they'll sit in and in uh, focus groups and stuff like that. But that's not what this is, right? This is, I mean, like when, when we were working on our pricing model, I sat down, I, so I had the connections to make this happen. And I, you know, so I, I admit that, but I, uh, I sat down with procurement teams, not just procurement leaders, right? And I said, hey, you know, let's talk about SaaS and SaaS pricing. Let's talk about like, not only, you know, like we all know kind of like how it goes, but like what's behind it? And if you could write your own ticket for a SaaS vendor, what would that look like? Understanding that they got to make a living too. Otherwise, you're not going to have that product around very long, right? So there's this is a, this is a balanced situation, right? But what would that look like? The things that came back even more than price, right, were I hate annual pricing. In other words, annual contracts, right? Uh -huh. Right? Because you're basically, particularly in the in year one, right? You're saying, okay, you're gonna take this whole risk. Let's say that the the deal value is 200K, right? Mm -hmm. And you're gonna make me pay it within 30 days of the contract. Mm -hmm. And then after that, win, lose, or draw, no matter how great it is or how much it sucks or how much you've misrepresented its capabilities or whatever, right? I'm stuck. And they're like, you know, more like I talked to this very large company that said, we're just not doing that. We are moving away from year one annual contracts. We will do quarterly contracts. We prefer monthly con month to month contracts, but we understand that a lot of software companies can't do that. So we'll do, we'll do quarter to quarter, right? And once it's proven out and once it's real and we all know it's real, right? Then yeah, sure, we'll do an annual contract. We'll even do multi-year contracts with you, right? But that first year, not so much. Agreed, agreed. Oh, that's great. Every founder, every SaaS founder needs to hear that, what you've just said. So I'm probably gonna actually call this title that every SaaS founder needs to listen to this more so <laughs> i've got just a couple of things before i let you go um dark social chris walker big on dark social yep. is yep. big saying you know you can't really capture all the data you know you've just got to ask for it i had laura erdem who's from dream data on saying well that's not really true because you know that last point of asking they're forgetting what they ain't last you know yep. week right. let alone how so you've got to be right. multi-touch well, tell me about your view on dark social because it's real and it's happening. We are sharing stuff that you cannot oh, it's see. Extremely, yeah, it's, so it's a real, real. thing. It's so extremely, with yeah. your forecasting, 
on proof, right? And mm -hmm. when there's this other phenomena happening, which you are very part of, but you are in it and you're doing it yourself, right? Yeah. So how can we really truly forecast or understand the impact of marketing where there is this dark social? So number one, I don't think it's most of the equation yet. Got it. Uh, yeah. I think it is yeah, 25%, maybe, right? Mm. Um, there's actually all kinds of problems with it too, because kind of like what we've seen with peer-to-peer -peer communication in a political context on social, mm. right? Mm. This can be kind of the blind leading the blind a lot of times. So just because you're talking to someone that you feel like is just like you, right, about a product, that's not everything you need to know Ooh. about that product or about that problem the product is solving, right? Um, so that that's a, but that's kind of over to one side. So let me, you asked specifically about Chris. Yes. So number one, I am, I am a, I'm a big fan of anybody, including Chris Walker, who is trying to crack this nut. Um, I will tell you that statistically speaking, mathematically speaking, what he is really doing is correlation without math, right? So he's, he's running tests and he's saying, just ask these questions and accumulate these responses, right? And you'll see kind of what's going on. Yeah. Now, is that true or can you like make a make a bet in your marketing mix based on that? If you look at his customer base, they are startups and they are typically running pretty simple marketing programs. Their marketing mix is not really multivariable, right? Yeah, maybe one to two. They might be running yeah, one maybe to two, three, three, even, three, right? three, three know, platforms, but, but yeah. Yeah, but, it, but it's not, a, it's not a, a killer, right? Yeah. They're not. They're also not global or even multi-geo, multi-country yeah. for the yeah. most part. Yeah. Or the volume's not there. That, right. That, so, that's the other that's problem. There's not a huge so, volume that they need to analyze. So as, as a, you know, there, <laughs> as a parent, I, I use the phrase age appropriate. It seems like a lot, right? Um, it, if um, what he's suggesting is stage appropriate, particularly, yes. particularly if the business has fairly rapid feedback loops. But you also, so the, the, the factors that it doesn't deal with effectively at all are the fact that we live in a multivariable world, right? That includes, as we've discussed, stuff that we control and stuff that we don't control. He, he's not talking really about time lagged effects at all. He is not talking about the fact that things that we do and things that we don't control combine together either positively or negatively or some combination of the two, right? To propel us to a particular outcome. So you, you can't, 
you can't get all the way there with his approach. Now, does that mean that it's bad? No, I think it's age appropriate or it's stage appropriate, right? Complexity appropriate, whatever you, however you wanna say it, right? Um, is he helping companies that probably aren't set up yet to use a tool like Proof? or for that matter, to spend several million dollars a year on marketing mixed modeling with Nielsen. Yeah, absolutely, right? He is doing that and he should, I, I applaud him for it. He should be applauded for it. I but agree. He, I, I, but it's a, there's a cap, there's a ceiling on what he's proposing. I totally agree. And I think it's important people understand what staging they're at and what they need at that stage before they go and overcapitalize or invest and they don't even have the volume to enable a, you know, a product to perform can, can at its best too. Can I also say something about the dark social part of the question? Yes, yes, go so one of the So one of the cool things about modeling, about regression modeling, is that it works both ways. So you can kind of move back through a model, right? or forward through a model. Um, and there are, there are definitely a lot of situations today where we may not be able to capture dark social data, but we can clearly establish that it's there and that it is playing a role in these different equations, these different models that is substantial or, or not, right? And so you can, you can kind of, I mean, because we are talking about private conversations for the most part, right? And, and I'd be the first one to say that the day that we can fully account for dark social, that is a scary place that we mm -hmm. have brought ourselves, right? So I would kind of oppose it on general principles being able to pierce that veil. But we can already model the impact of dark social kind of like retroactively or, or, or what I really mean by that is by reverse engineering it, right, in the model. It's sort of like seeing a black hole. You don't really see the black hole because it's black. It's mm. black and black, right? But you can using radio signals and all this kind of stuff, you can establish the parameters of the whole. Mm. And that's very much what happens with analytics. Yeah. Well, with duck, what's really interesting in the organic play, I mean, and you know, how big can you truly get in organic unless you're a really big influencer? But what happens right now, what I'm seeing is if I get a 70K or 80K view on a, on a organic one post, the lead that you bring in, you know, it's massive in terms of following and so forth, but the actual leads, like what actually comes and gets booked in for demos or services, whatever it, you are selling, you know, you're looking at about an eight to 10 per for that post that you did just that from one. I mean, then there was multi touches before that they knew you, then you've just come up and you've really hit a nerve like the one you've seen, but in paid that same views won't get you the same conversion that you're having in organic and it's fascinating for me right now watching why not you know why is it that 
when it is when it isn't organic is you know why why can you get more and when you pay for it why isn't it maybe yes it's a more cold audience but say you're even hitting sometimes the same audience it's in your mind just the same networks you still don't get the same impact and I think when I look at that it must be the social aspect of so many people commenting on that post so many people giving it that credibility the trust the engagement that oh, maybe well, that, when you're yeah. looking at it that paid you don't have that so people don't look at it the same way you know the same piece of content you go wow this did so i'll take it over to paid and i'll model that and i'll grab eight you know if i spend sixty thousand, i'll grab eight leads right you think that's the natural why not it's the content the content's the same and putting it in front of the exact same buyer um but it, it's not it's 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 not it's not the same effect no i mean it's you look at airbnb right that's been very much in the news lately about its marketing Mm-hmm. Uh, how it's concentrating its marketing spend. That's a classic awareness, confidence, trust play, right? Because if you're the person making the family vacation prep, right? Your nightmare, okay, is that you get to the hotel or the house or the villa or whatever, and your your spouse or your kids goes, mom or dad, this sucks, right? And everyone knows that it sucks and yet you're stuck there for a week, right? Mm. So what Airbnb, and this is why PR actually, even today, scores so high in in MMM models, right? In terms of its impact um, on revenue margin and cash flow is it's a, it's a, it's all about confidence and trust, right? And so by doubling down and even, you know, I think actually they're spending five times as much on PR today as they were before COVID. What they're really saying is we are going to make sure that you understand as a customer of Airbnb that what you see is what you're going to get. And now we're back to four seasons, right? Now we're talking about decision insurance, right? And the problem, the problem is that for the most part, paid, paid channels are not any good on confidence and trust. They're just not because they everyone understands exactly what they are. They are your opinion of yourself, right? They are propaganda, right? So one of the things that we see a lot in the analytics is that customers will mine what you say in paid and owned channels, they will take it all, right? And then about halfway through the customer journey, they will almost completely abandon those channels. And from that point forward, they're totally focused on what could be broadly called earned, right? Which would include dark social, by the way. Um, and And it's because from in the back half of the funnel, their whole purpose is to mitigate risk. And their primary risk from when you talk to them, when you have a really honest conversation, their primary risk is you as the vendor. It's, are you telling me the truth? Is this real? Can I really depend on this? So this is all confidence and trust type questions. And that's why they don't care anymore about what you say about yourself. They only care about what other people say about you. 
absolutely. I've got a final question here before I let you go for you. And I'm curious about your content process. So how do you go about producing at the volume and how do you come up with the amazing questions and thoughts that, you know, get us to think? <laughs> oh boy. It's kind of a combo, right? Um, the way, the way that I would kind of really try to explain this is that I probably have an, you know, a lot of knowledge in this space, right? Um, and what I'm looking for today is I'm looking for signals from other people on how they want it explained to them. And so from time to time, I will run across something like that and I'll go, dang, that's like really awesome, right? I mean, what the way they phrase the question or the, you know, whatever it is, right? And so I will develop it further, right? And I'll feed it back into the system. Um, and lo and behold, right? Uh, these, these kinds of posts tend to score uh, pretty highly. I also use a lot of surveys that are, I, I spend a lot of time on them because I don't want anyone to think that there's some sort of sales trap. You know, um, by the way, this also, I, I learned a long time ago on LinkedIn that I can't sell to people and be helpful to people at the same time. So I typically, I got the number of people who can say that they have ever, you know, connected with me and gotten in a, you know, an immediate follow-up of some sort in a sales way is probably less than five. And they were like a long time ago, right? So if you connect with me and if you respond to one of my polls, you are not going to suddenly be subjected to a blizzard of stuff for me. Yes. Um, and so I, I, uh, I made that choice, but I also, I want to provoke people to think, you know, because there is a lot of belief in the world. Let's just say marketing, right? There's a lot of belief in marketing. There's a lot of belief in sales circles. And a lot of that belief is surprisingly true. Like marketers have correctly intuited a lot of what works. They just can't prove it, right? Um, but there's what they, what they don't acknowledge to very much to their detriment is that in periods, particularly in periods of high volatility, high velocity change, a lot of the stuff that used to work for them no longer works or no longer works as well. And so they, they just keep doing it out of belief. They keep turning that crank because, you know, sooner or later it's all going to work. Right. And that is not a, that's not a, a, an open mind. That's not, that's not being willing to learn. That's not being willing to say, you know what, I understand that I don't control most of it and I understand the world is changing a lot and whoops, maybe I need to kind of have some help here. 
You know, a pi pilots actually went through a similar evolution on this. You know, when you're flying a, a, a fighter plane in World War II at 500 miles an hour, you needed about five gauges, you know, in your cockpit and you were either a really good experienced pilot or you, or you weren't, this is kind of the fly by the seat of your pants era. This is the intuitive pilot era. And then all of a sudden, 10 years later, the sound barrier is broken and everything is going multiples of the speed of sound, multiple Mach, right? And the other side, your, your opponent is doing the same thing. So closing speed becomes like four Mach, right? And, and you're like, whoa, there's no way in all of this back and forth and sideways at that speed cannot keep up. Human, human brain just goes, you know, fries. And so what happens? They start adding instrumentation. They start adding automation. They start adding kind of early AI. And now there's quite a bit of AI in those planes. And it's all geared to aiding the pilot to make a better decision on a few things that's going to result in mission completion and him or her staying alive. That's it, right? And so there's no shame at all if you're a business leader, if you're a marketing leader. Say, you know what? World is a really complicated place. And I... I know because the research is so clear that I, my brain, just like your brain and everyone else's brain can't handle more than three or four variables at any given yeah. time. And if any of them are heavily time lagged, then I'm screwed for sure. Mm -hmm. And so I need help. I need augmentation. I need to be analytics led. I need to be doing all that stuff to, so that it makes me better. It doesn't replace me. It makes me better. Awesome. So when these amazing thoughts come to you as a thought leader and deep thoughts, and you said, you know, it's because you've got so much knowledge, do you note them down? You're having yeah. a moment, oh, yeah. you're having that, oh, like, yeah. where do you put it? Do you put oh, yeah. it in your phone somewhere? Like, do you, yeah. or do you take no, an I'm... audio note? <laughs> no, I, you know what I have found, you know, it's pretty funny. You know, um, I keep a little, uh, a little note card and a pen right by my bed. Okay. And, uh, and I'll just note it down. Even if I wake up in the middle of the night yeah. um, and, and all of a sudden have a thought, I'll, cause I know if I wait, I, I, it'll I know it's out. gone. It's, it's gone. Totally that's, gone. What, that's, nope. that's what I need. That's what, but what about if you're having the thought and you're not next to your bed and you're walking around and you're in that moment? Oh, then, you then know? I absolutely, I do my little thing on my iPhone and just record it down. Up. Yeah, right. Record exactly. it or note it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like, do yeah. you record or do you, do you note take in your notes? No, section? I record. I record. Yeah. It's, okay. It's, uh, it's too, takes too long to type. Yes. It, it could be you gone know. by then, right? It could gone be gone by, by the time you're typing. <laughs> no, and also, and also you, you know, particularly when you haven't worked it all completely out, there's so much more that you can convey in the same amount of time talking to yourself as opposed to writing to yourself. Agreed. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, uh, I also think that 
So I've, I'm one of those people that finds so many things really interesting. And so I have studied a lot of different things in to varying depths, right? Mm. And, and usually these, these subjects have on the surface, nothing in common with each other. Right. So like when I'm not doing all this, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is uh, I study 15th century kind of pre-Renaissance innovation, particularly in the area of military conflict, right? Because there was so much in Europe, in Central Europe, that was technology and innovation was driven by war in, in that period of time. And so, and then you look at the relationships between like Medici and Leonardo da Vinci, right? And this reads just like present day, right? You've got the sponsor, you've got Medici who is brilliant, right? In some respects, almost as brilliant as Leonardo, he just can't actually do it. Mm -hmm. He needs Leonardo to be actually, to actualize it all for him. And he's sitting there in these letters going, hey, butthead, right? Mm -hmm. I know you want to do this fresco, but I'm at war with Pisa right now, right? Yeah. And if you don't give me the giant crossbow from hell that you promised me, right? I'm going to lose and it's your, it's going to be your fault and you're not going to get any more money. So can we like, please focus, right? It's hilarious. I mean, you just like, yeah. you're sitting going, man, I have, I have like been there. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I just, I think that my ability to connect dots, uh, sometimes is really aided by that, right? And, you know, people who've known me a long time will say that Mark is never at a loss for an analogy. And, yeah, and, right. it, and it's probably true, mainly because I've read so much about so many things and knock on wood, right? I'm in my mid fifties. I, you know, I still have, you know, a really good memory. Right. And I, and, uh, and hopefully always will. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think polls is a really great strategy. It's fast. It's quick. It's, it does well. I mean, it's a, it's a really, you know, for people that are time poor, I think, you know, definitely go follow Mark, have a look at how he's doing it. I think it's super powerful because all other formats might take that extra bit more time, you know, like video formats that if you want to put out, which I think, it's you, you're incredible on video as well, but I'm sure that that's just that extra bit yeah. of time going, okay, you need a video editor. You need a team that's constantly cutting that up and giving you back the content. Right. That's right. No, that's true. That's, I mean, I, I, I will say this on the, on the polls, right. One of the most fascinating things that I have discovered in all that, and I've discussed it before and people who do a lot of polling, uh, on LinkedIn have exactly the same experience. So let's say I launch a poll and I get 30 votes. It, it's entirely possible. It's usual, probable, more than possible, probable that I will get 30 additional votes by, by private message. 
Oh. The number of people who don't want to interact with content publicly, but that consume it, um, is staggering. You know, like when I was out and about, you know, mainly pre-COVID, you know, doing a lot of speaking, being, you know, keynote here and keynote there and all that kind of stuff. It used to amaze me the number of people who would come up to me and say, I read all your stuff, right? And I and I just really love it so much. And, I, and I'm sitting there inside myself, because I would never say this, but I don't remember ever seeing your name in any of these posts, right? So finally, I, I asked this guy uh, at South By one time, I said, I, I'm so sorry. I said, I got, cause I don't remember you commenting at all or being, you know, engaging at all with, with content. And he goes, oh, I don't. He said, but he said, just in this conversation, I think it's pretty obvious that I read it. And, and it was, it was totally obvious, right? Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. So 60, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like you, of people. You, you, <laughs> other than, other than the invite to be on your podcast, I don't think you've ever commented. No. Right? No, I've never, no, yeah, I've never you interacted. Have a, you have a facility though with the content that I've shared that's obvious. Yeah, so it's funny. Um, I didn't interact because it's actually one of my employees picked up your comment and sent it to me and said, you know, look at this thought leader. Would you be interested to maybe send him an invite? Because he, like, so I've got my employees constantly like looking around for the next thought leader and you know, the next innovative mind and sent it to me. And I, and it was just that comment was sufficient. And then went and checked out that you've got a style about you. And I was like, you know what? I like that style. And, and I've gone and looked at you a few times, but it's funny. I haven't voted on anything, but I'm sitting there and looking at it and, you know, saying, okay, yeah, this guy, this guy's got substance. So we're always judging. And I think 60% of people, it's just looking at, and not interacting according to the LinkedIn report that was released recently. So you've got like this silent audience who are usually investors and people that are going to do business with you. They're not going to be the people that actually interact. So I agree with you. It's super cool. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. What a thought leader you are and your depth of knowledge really shines through. Um, I'm excited to release this piece and, you know, I've got some snippets there. I've actually, I think it's going to be super cool to the market to show off some great um, depth in thoughts over there. So thank you for coming on and everyone listening on, make sure you follow Mark. His details will be in the description. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You are listening to Innovative Minds.